Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast and the Times. I'm Matt Jolly. Get the very best of the Times political coverage in your inbox every morning from me. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash red box and sign up now. So, after all the excitement of last week's Brexit drama, absolutely nothing of any real interest has happened since. So until the Prime Minister, the Leader of the Opposition or anyone else in Westminster gives us reason to talk about Brexit again, we are declaring this week's episode a Brexit-free zone, because frankly there are plenty of other things to worry about. Rising obesity, rising pension ages, rising wages, rising prices, the rise of the robots, the death of the high street, the wobble in the housing market, knife crime, online crime, air pollution, sea pollution, fake news, anti-Semitism, vandalised war memorials, bombs in Northern Ireland, bombs in Syria, then there's Iran, North Korea, Venezuela, even France in turmoil, China's economic slowdown and America's political meltdown. There's a whole world out there that seems to be going to pot and you can't help thinking, well I can't help thinking that we might be better off spending less time worrying about what Nick Cooper or Yvette Bowles are doing and looking beyond to the crises and chaos which are all still there and will be there if and when we ever stop talking about sodding Brexit. I asked uh, readers of the Red Box email what they thought we should be worried about instead. John Story said he's worried about what happens when the lights go out. He should ask Theresa May because she's been living without power for ages. Uh, Phil Griffiths is worried about Maltesers sharing packs getting smaller. Uh, Sue Collins is worried about potholes and Jamie By is worried about being made to vote in this year's European parliamentary elections which sounds horribly close to the thing we are trying to avoid. So I've assembled a crop of Times experts on this week's episode to shine a light on what is happening on their beat from political battles and policy wars to real-life global conflicts, just in case you didn't have enough to worry about. Lucy Fisher, the defence correspondent, is worried about NATO. Graham Payton, the transport correspondent, is worried about the railways. Chris Smythe, the health editor, is worried about almost all of the NHS. And columnist Kenny Farkerson is worried about SNP infighting. But first, Times columnist Rachel Sylvester on her big worry in Westminster. Food bank queues are growing and homelessness is on the rise, but the government has spent money it could have allocated to lifting the welfare freeze and tackling poverty on preparing for you-know-what. Amber Rudd has made clear she wants to change things and reform universal credit, but she's struggling to get the cash. So it's been interesting this, Rachel, since Amber Rudd went to the DWP, we sort of had this weird period of, of Esther McVeigh being there, where she, I'm not sure she did very much apart from sort of garner all the wrong sorts of headlines. Amber Rudd's trying to go back to the original Ian Duncan Smith plan, which was making work pay, but it was it involved putting a lot of work money into it to make it work and try to reverse some of the cuts that George Osborne made. What, what impact do you think Amber Rudd's having? Well, I think she's trying to have quite a big impact. And she's not just trying to get more money. She's trying to change some of the more socially conservative aspects of the Ian Duncan Smith ideas, actually. So, for example, she's trying to end this idea that you can only have two children. Uh, and if you have more than that, you don't get any benefits for them. Um, but the problem is all the money is going on to planning for Brexit. And um, in the meeting when they approved two billion extra for no deal planning, Amber Rudd actually said, look, there's so much more we could use this money for. Do we really want to spend this on something that none of us want to happen? You know, 1.5 billion could lift the welfare freeze, which is one of the main reasons a lot of people are ending up at food banks and living in poverty. And then one of the things that shocked me most last year was I got out of Westminster for a couple of months and went round to different communities to write an investigation on poverty for the Times. And, you know, it was people, 150 people queuing for food parcels in Oldham. These are people who'd used up all their food bank allocation. You're only allowed to go twice to the food bank there. So they were trying to 
queue up to buy cheap food from a charity. I spoke to one little boy in South London who talked about how he'd been homeless with his family uh, and the only place he got any food was at school. You know, this is Britain in the 21st century. It does. I did find it really shocking, actually, and really pathetic that the government is spending so much attention on something else when this is you know this is a Theresa May is supposed to be about tackling burning injustices well this is one it's sort of interesting how we've gotten from the period when George Osborne used to say you can't cut welfare enough you know the public love it every time we cut it we go up in the polls that 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 seems to have changed is that sort of Jeremy Corbyn influence that he's managed to sort of politicize it in a way that Ed Miliband didn't manage because he was too worried about looking like he wasn't going to be tough on the deficit and all that. So what, what do you I think's think changed? I think they've just cut it to the bone, to be honest. And it's got it's starting to affect more and more people. So, for example, the number of... So there's a sort of overall figure of people living in poverty according to all the sort of usual measures, which is something like 14 million. But what's the number of pensioners living in poverty has gone down really dramatically. But the number of working people living in poverty has, has soared. And they're the ones who are, some of them, ending up at food banks. And that's partly because of sort of problems with the implementation of universal credit with this big five-week gap when you first start and all of that. But it's also just the sort of overall war of attrition, if you like. And, and it's interesting, and I'm sure everyone around this table on your patches you'll you'll know this there's a difference between like the big announcement which you know depending on how well it's spun goes down quite well at the time but there's a long tail before it reaches the person who it affects yeah. and it's an even longer time before the the negative or positive impacts might be felt so the there's one more year of this four-year welfare freeze that osborne announced and amber rudd has been pressing the chancellor to lift that in april but he literally just spent the money on no deal planning for a no deal that none of them say they want it's crazy lucy let's bring you in here um, Rich, I just wanted you ask, uh, to ask you, you, you um, sparked my imagination mentioning um, how pensioner poverty has fallen vastly. And I was really surprised to read in the Times last week that one in five over 65s in the UK is now a millionaire. Um, such uh, are the um, pension savings and property prices have gone through. The roof. Do you think that some sort of form of generational rebalancing is due? Is part of the solution taking away some of those perks like free TV licenses and bus passes for the over 65s? I do. Yes. And also things like the fact that you don't pay national insurance if you're over 65, but you're still working. There are quite a lot of things that the Chancellor could do to rebalance that. Um, and the other, you know, also housing is obviously a huge issue for younger people really struggling to get onto the housing ladder. And the older generation has done very well out of the increase in house prices. So I definitely think that's true. And also the problem is for the Tories, they're really struggling at the moment with younger voters and they're very reliant on older voters, um, which is a huge problem for them in the future. But right now they don't alienate those Silver surfers, silver voters, whatever it is, <laughs> great power. Um, but it's sort of—it's because the Tories, I feel, feel like they're trapped in trying to to hold on to what they've got in terms of their support. They're not in the space of big bold moves to reach out to new generations. They just want to sort of hang on to their voters before the all time. Uh, Chris, I mean, even within that older group, there is quite a big divide in the sense that they are just dying in bigger numbers than before. Life expectancy is stalled in, in this country after decades and decades of rising. And in some parts of the country, it's actually falling uh, quite significantly. So some pensioners are extremely wealthy, but some are really struggling. And, and the sort of, there is a sort of underlying fissure in society that are going on. And Yes, as you say, the, the, the wealthy pensioners are an obvious source of, of wanting to deal with those who are not as well as the working age, but that is politically very difficult, um, which the uh, Troy's found when it came to social care. And, and what about, um, 
the idea of addressing this and uh, sort of addressing poverty feels like one of those sort of nice, cuddly political issues at a time when politics is pretty nasty at the moment, on both sides. I'm going to use the word, but sort of Brexit and leave and remain. It's so sort of divisive. People associate doing things like tackling poverty with a sort of let sunshine win the day, David Cameron, hug a husky type thing. It's all, Am- Amber so. Rudd feels... I, I sort of feel the opposite. It's much more, you know, you could associate it with Ken Loach and... I suppose that's the reality. Yeah. The reality of it is much more gritty. And, it, and also, I know we're not supposed to mention Brexit, but <laughs> if you think about what caused Brexit, I don't think people were really voting on whether they wanted a customs union or a Canada plus or a Norway minus model. They were voting because they were cross about inequalities in this country, a sense of the country changing, a sense that they were being left behind. And part of that is this feeling that the wealth hasn't been distributed fairly around the country. That that's ge- yeah. that's ge- geographical, but also generational and also um, class-based. Yeah, I think in the early days of the of Tory government in the coalition, there was that sense that, oh, well, we don't need to worry about this. Well, you know, That's a sort of late labour issue. But I, I think in the last couple of years, people have really started to realise, actually, there is signs that, that you know, the society is fraying the homelessness being the most visible element of that. We yeah. saw that in the election and I don't think that's going away. Well, let's move on because we've got a lot to get through. Let's move on from a, a subject where there's a minister wanting more money and not getting it to a minister who's absolutely swimming in it. Not Chris. I'm talking about, <laughs> about Hancock, but uh, this is Chris Smith. Yes, so a 10-year plan for the NHS is one thing the government does want to talk about, making a blizzard of new promises on what can be achieved with its £20 extra that it's promised over five years. But just as important was what they didn't mention in that plan, staffing, social care, waiting times, uh, and a plan for a legislative reorganisation. On the one hand, we're still deep in austerity. You've got money being spent on the thing that we're not going to talk about all over the place. But Matt Hancock doesn't know what to do with himself. He's got so much money. Well, it does. It does <laughs> seem like that. And yet still, there are parts of the interest saying, well, hold on, we still need a bit more bit more money over here. And, and it is a, a problem of our ageing society that healthcare is swallowing up ever more of our national spending. It's not unique to Britain. Every country is seeing this, but particularly when other departments are so starved, it does look very difficult politically to give so much to the NHS and it's still coming back for more. Well, let's break down some of the, the, the issues you raised. So let's talk about staffing, because obviously one of the problems is you can have a big pot of money, but that doesn't immediately rustle up thousands of doctors if they've not been trained over the past yes, six years. Yes, and it's failure to plan staffing properly has been a real serious failure of the NHS over a long time. And you see it even in, in the current plan, which acknowledges staffing's a problem, but says, oh, we can't really come up to a, a plan for staffing because that's dealt by the separate budget, which we won't know what that is until the spending review. So it is very disjointed. Uh, no one really feels it's their job to sort it out. And as you say, well, it takes 10 years to train a doctor and you know, everyone's moved on by then and they can blame someone else. We're in the middle of the winter. Are we in the middle of a winter crisis? How bad is it in comparison? You're sort of on your barometer of winter crisis. Last year set the dial quite high when you had doctors saying people were dying in corridors in the thousands. So you know, it's, it sets the, 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 the bar for, for news quite high. And, you know, the thing that we won't mention also has an impact in the sense that the first week of January, there's nothing else usually going on politically. That's the time when everyone wants about the NHS. That wasn't the case this year. So people just aren't paying attention. It is pretty tough out, uh, out there. There is some signs that they are, the planning has been better this year. It is a little bit less pressure, but it is still very, very hard out there. And we're just not paying that much attention. One of the striking things when Theresa May launched, tried to talk about the NHS at the start of the year, launched the 10-year plan, basically she admitted that waiting time targets have not been met and won't be met for some time. 
how bad is that in reality? Well, it's an interesting. Simon Stevens, head of NHS England, won that political battle um, in the sense that the government's putting twenty billion in, and they wanted to say, well, yes, you're going to hit our waiting time targets. You can have your treatment in time. And he said, we just can't afford that if you want to do all these other things on cancer and mental health. So they ostentatiously didn't commit to hitting the targets. And there is a sense that the review that they're setting up of the targets is going to be cover for saying, actually, we're going to dilute them a bit, and some people are just going to have to wait longer. And that is not going to be very popular with you know four million people on a waiting list how um does this all relate to the social care green paper and can they actually have a proper long-term plan for the nhs if they don't know what they're going to do on social care do you know where where well, has that got to? exactly and even simon seems in that plan made a very clear point of saying this plan will not work if social care isn't sorted out and we have more older people pouring into hospitals uh who are not sorted out and the social care green paper is a year late it is supposed to be coming out very soon but they've been saying that for quite a long time but the indications are that the you know, that the money has gone into the nhs philip hammond just says well that that's your lot in that department you're not getting significant extra for social care and money does need to be found for somewhere if, if the system is not going to lead to more people going without help and ending up in a and e lucy and graham what, what would your ministers your respective ministers do gary williams at defense chris grading at transport if they got twenty billion pounds, how do they feel looking across the cabinet table to to Matt Hancock, sort of splashing the you know waving big wads of cash around? Well, in fact, um, twenty billion is about just about meets uh, the target that some members of the Defence Select Committee have called for um, for a boost in defence spending in the UK. They look back to the um, Cold War when. Um, Defence spending was about four to five percent of GDP. It's nominally about two percent um, right now. So um, I think there is there is a big movement in, in defence that thinks that that's exactly the sort of sum that is needed to get the kind of air um, defences, lots of kind of holes in our capability, particularly things like air defence that aren't necessarily as sexy as having the bright new shiny F thirty five jets or the kind of huge carrier that sails around the world and. And looks quite um, impressive. Um, so uh, I, no, I think there would be uh, there'd be many ways that they could spend it. And Graham, uh, how many how many empty lorries <laughs> driving around Kenya's <laughs> twenty billion pounds buy for Chris Gailey? Well, to be honest, transport isn't that badly funded in terms of in terms of actual infrastructure, in terms of capital spending. I mean, they've just announced twenty billion plus to upgrade ma- upgrade major roads over the next five years. Um, HS two is obviously rolling along, and I was just there yesterday. They've they've started to actually build it at Euston now. And uh, they spend about six and a half billion pounds on the railways every year. It's not too bad. There are big pinch points, and they are notably things like local roads, fixing potholes. It's the it's the stuff that local authorities do and mainly get the flack for. And that's where the money's needed. And that's where political priorities are quite low because it is such a localised issue. We'll come on to railways in a second. But as, as you touched on roads, potholes that is the thing that winds people up probably more than anything else. Tell me about it. Uh, absolutely. It's, um, you know, every every survey of motorists or local transport users, pot, it always comes back to potholes. You know, the issue is that it falls down between two stools. It's a local authority priority, um, yet local authorities, as Chris touched upon, have not got any money because it's all going into adult social care. Um, <laughs> or not, or not, as the yeah, case what may there be. Is. What yeah, there what is. there is is being and, going in. Yeah, and there's very little. I say very little. There's little incentive on the part of central government to properly throw that money to local government because obviously the central government doesn't get the benefit from it. So it, it's it's this issue that that is it's a perennial underfunder, if you like, and. You know, it will take some brave decisions to actually to actually change that. At the moment, I can't see it happening. And there, there is one sense for the NHS has been a beneficiary or politically of uh, Brexit. I mean, there is a direct line between that notorious bus and this twenty billion pounds extra. And, and you know, it has been politically 
protected. They, if you think back to the 90s, the last time the NHS was struggling this badly, the right of the Tory party then was saying, it's not working, privatise it, dismantle it, introduce charging, whatever. They're not doing that at the moment because they know that public affection for the NHS helped win them the referendum. I thought you should have written potholes on the side of the bus <laughs> and then all would have been well. Um, just before we move on, Chris, you, you touched on they're talking about another dreaded NHS reorganisation. Y- y- yes, I mean, this used to be pretty controversial stuff under the coalition. Andrew Lansley's w- reforms were one of the huge uh, flashpoints, years of, of battles over this. And now the government say, oh, actually, yeah, they didn't really work and we're going to un- undo them and, and not only undo the controversial bits of them but sort of reverse 30 years of a sort of internal market in, in the NHS saying actually no that, that that was it's not really working now and we need a much more integrated system and you'd, you'd think there'd be a bit of a debate about that. I can't help think of getting bored in another NHS reorganisation we'll end up longing for the simpler days of talking about Brexit. Anyway uh, let's move on because we've got a lot to get through. This is Lucy Fisher. Britain's defence has for the past 70 years relied on the Western Alliance, a special relationship with the US and a strong NATO. Neither can be taken for granted anymore. The UK must ask, can NATO survive and should it? And what are our other options? So what is it that's posing this? I mean, I think there are multiple threats, but just sort of talk us through the the, the threats to NATO and the sort of settled order as we saw it. So um, I think what we're seeing is is the world is looking increasingly dangerous. We've we've enjoyed a sort of unprecedented in in modern times um, period of peace in the past 70 years, which has been facilitated by a weak Russia, um, an inward-looking China that was sort of dormant for the purposes of, of the rest of the world, debilitated Japan. And, and now you've got sort of rising world powers again, um, uh, set against the backdrop of a US president who has a personal antipathy towards multilateral organisations like NATO, like the UN, that underpin an international rule, rules-based order. Uh, and of course, um, you've still got the sort of the, the problem of terror networks um, across the world. You know, we know talk about ISIS, um, Al Qaeda is growing um, in North Africa and the Sinai Peninsula. So um, we've got an ever more dangerous um, world. And the sort of relationship in NATO just just seems to be incredibly weak. Obviously, we've had the reports of Donald Trump threatening to pull the US out of the military part. And that alone, even the, the floating of that suggestion is enough to really to really break the confidence in the collective security that, that lies at the heart of that alliance. And Article 5, the idea that, you know, the other 27 members would come to the, the rescue of, of one, the, the 28th member, who is in trouble. I was talking to a... Uh diplomat this week who was saying that part of uh it was european diplomat was saying that part of the problem with britain leaving the eu is that it's sort of weakening the block which was st- already struggling and is is looking across to looking around the world and essentially if the next big global conflict be it economic or or potentially military is essentially between america and china what role are countries that used to stride around the world stage whether it's britain or france or germany what role are they playing in the world if everything has been tilted towards america and china i think that's a really good question um and i think the brexit and the sort of the weakening of the eu by brexit and by other means is also important because really you've seen peace maintained in some ways by um by prosperity, you know, the EU, you know, helped drag a lot of those sort of former Soviet satellite states into the Western sphere by the promise of kind of consumer capitalism and higher living standards. Um, I think it is that there is a lot of um, 
concern on Whitehall about the fact that the UK doesn't really appear to have a foreign policy. And I think it's interesting that we've had um, uh, a number of of people, some more credible um, than others, sort of talking in recent uh, weeks and months about possibly the Department of International Development being kind of put back into the Foreign Office and more kind of joined up thinking between the FCO and the MOD and International Trade Department and, and so forth, so that the UK can at least have a coherent internal uh, policy. But yeah, I think that the loss of the UK's sort of voice inside the EU on the world stage will be problematic. And we also see that the, the UK as well is looking elsewhere to sort of form form sort of interesting bilateral relationships, trying to strengthen... <laughs> Liam Fox <laughs> selling kazoos to um, Hawaii. In well, well that, quite. Yeah. It's interesting, for example, you know, the uh, the Israeli Air Force is having the first um, joint exercise over the UK with the RAF this year. You know, Britain's trying to strengthen its defence relationships with Japan to try and kind of strengthen sort of a block in, in Scandinavia. But you, you, you just go back to thinking... It would be better, surely, to have to have a stronger multilateral bloc like like NATO or, or, or next generation organisation. And Russia, how worried should we be constantly about Russia? Well, I think we should be really worried about Russia because um, while the while the threat of um, a conventional war from Russia, I think, is low, um, bar perhaps. Uh, uh, escalation resulting from a miscalculation on the border with the, the Baltic states or, or, or in Ukraine. I think the real threat comes from Russia's, uh, the effectiveness with which it can deploy this hybrid strategy. Because it is such a statist country, it can really use every lever, the media, its military of which is vastly sort of larger than, than, than the UK's. And of course, their soldiers don't have to, you know, have very poor pensions, don't have to be paid, you know, get away with paying them sort of pittance and sort of thrusting them in, into the front line. They've got sort of 400,000 people working in their security services. And it's the recklessness which was demonstrated in Salisbury last year, you know, sort of the willingness to sort of come and try and lay down a chemical attack in the UK to try and hack kind of organisations all across uh, all across Europe. I, I think it's um, it's their boldness and, and, and willingness to mm. avoid and ignore all the, all the rules respected by others. They must be thinking, Russia, surely, that with uh, NATO under question, Britain and the EU sort of fragmented, those Baltic states look quite quite vulnerable i mean you know crimea style situation where you get people in the country to sort of agitate and demand more i mean it could be quite dangerous couldn't it oh i th- i think it, it it could be i mean i i i'm not sure that Russia would want to stage a full-out conventional uh, assault. And I think if we see more movement, which could well be this year, it would be in Ukraine, mm. um, where where they've got a tried and tested method and, and, and lots of cells in, uh, in, in other parts of Ukraine that they've already kind of g- given a go to. And what are the generals thinking at the moment when they look at the politicians, when they see sort of Gavin Williamson strutting around politic- politicking, obviously sort of trying to mount a leadership bid and, and the sort of political class, what, they, they're just, they must just look and think that they're so incompetent. What's that relationship? Like? Yeah, I think that's a, that, that's, that's a really good question. I think that there is, um, to be fair to Gavin Williamson, who obviously has been, had the mickey taken out of him, and <laughs> rightly so, for all sorts of suggestions and, and making jokes in meetings, you know, high level military meetings about, you know, deploying paintball. <laughs> Spanish ships out around Gibraltar. I think that there there is an acknowledgement that he did fight for more money in a climate where there is very little to go around. And while um, many people think uh, in in the forces that um, 1.8 billion over two years is is not enough um, to close the kind of black hole in the, in the budget over the next ten years, that it's better than the many were actually I- expecting. Really, at the top of the services, you have 
people who are very politically aware. I think that there, you know, since the changes in 96, 97, that military chiefs had to provide uh, advice to ministers that was politically aware and not just neutral. You've seen a rise through the three services of people who are quite astute and understand the political picture and perhaps in some cases have got ahead because they've been more willing to tell ministers what they want to hear. I think that there is uh, an understanding that, that the more money is needed, Gavin is trying to push for it and the political climate is such that there's not there's not much more forthcoming. How much worse do things get before the military launch a coup and take control of what's <laughs> happening in Westminster? Well, I think that there's a huge amount of consternation about what happens if, if Jeremy Corbyn enters number 10 and what a Labour um, defence policy would look like. I was at a conference over the weekend with Nia Griffith, the Shadow Defence Secretary, who's actually, her views are quite conventional on defence, but she's well known to be not, you know, kind of aligned <laughs> with the inner quad in um, in the Labour leader's office. So I, I think the military are probably right to be uh, to be worried about the sort of funding and policies that might come their way. And actually, Labour. sort of antipathy towards organisations like NATO is, is sort of where the Jeremy Corbyn-Donald Trump axis sort of ends up joining up around the back, where you wouldn't necessarily expect them to. But Yes, yeah, I, I think that's um, that's an unusual sort of um, similarity, of where, as you say, where the spectrum sort of joins up, becomes a circle. Well, let's move on. Um, not that we couldn't spend the whole of the episode talking about um, our, our global <laughs> military threats, uh, but let's move on. Um, after the break, we will be talking about the railways and we'll be talking about the uh, massive problems that Nicola Sturgeon is facing. We'll be back after this short break. Welcome back. You're listening to the Red Box Politics Podcast on the Times with me, Matt Jolly. This is Graham Payton. So the trains seem to be going off the rails. There was renewed anger in the new year over fare rises, punctualities at a 13-year low, and we have further changes to timetables coming in May, a year after the last big overhaul led to complete meltdown. So train operators and the government are promising change, but the question is, can they deliver? Now, commuters, I mean, lots of people listening to this podcast will be sitting on a train. They might be sitting on a train which isn't moving, as I quite often find uh, mm. on my way into Waterloo. What is wrong with the railways? Because to a commuter or a railway user, it feels, seems quite straightforward. My fares keep going up by masses every year, but there doesn't seem to be an improvement in the service. That's people's experience. Is that an accurate experience? Well, to give you the the sort of the government line effectively more and more people are using them the infrastructure was built some of it you know 150 years plus it is falling apart and we need to spend lots of money to get it working reliably and there is a little there's a very big debate about where that money comes from does it come from general taxation or does it come from the individual passenger now Lots of people think, well, it should come from the individual passengers, but you look at the areas that are the biggest recipient of that. Two thirds of people who travel by train travel in the southeast into London. You look at the northwest and other parts of the country, everyone drives to work. So effectively, do you start to have people subsidising people from the southeast from the north or do you have it so that the individual fare payers pay? Is there, is there an argument which says that part of the reason why everyone drives in the north is because the trains are so well, bad? Exactly. Because, you know, there's a sort of virtuous Ex- circle of... Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, you know, that's why, you know, when Labour and people like Andy Burnham jump up and down and say, isn't it disgraceful? You know, they are 13 years in power and they could have done lots to the Northern Rail franchise and did absolutely nothing. In fact, they actually, you know, it was they actually effectively ran it down. And, you know, they had you had effectively buses on tracks, um, pacer trains, which were introduced in the 80s um, under Thatcher, should have been decommissioned a few years later, and they carried on all through the 90s, all through the 2000s again, 
the last Labour government had ample opportunity to get rid of them and they didn't. So, you know, I, I'm not... Uh, you know, the fact is that trains in the north are in a terrible state. In fairness to this government, they are actually doing something. All the rolling stock on the northern and trans-Pennine franchises, which operate across the north of England, are being, are being changed um, by the end of this year. The Pacers, which I just mentioned, should have been decommissioned finally. And there are big upgrades to some of the railway lines up there. For example, the trans-Pennine line, which goes across Pennines, is uh, is being electrified or is certainly being uh, overhauled in some way. So change is happening. But, the, you know, these it's very, very hard to make change without without disrupting a lot more people and in the process, annoying everyone, and you have to spend money to do it. So it's that circle. It just keeps coming round and round, and it's a very difficult one to solve. And you end up having... And what's going on with um, HS2 and Crossrail? Are they both going badly wrong uh, well, to varying well, degrees? Crossrail, Crossrail's almost finished, to be fair, and it was, you know, it was a sort of Devon Locke-style scenario. It was, it was almost at the finishing post, and now it's just fallen over spectacularly and um but it's not far off i mean you know the basic infrastructure is there the station still needs to be fitted out and they need to they need to put some signaling in to um to make sure the trains can operate it's nearly there hs2's obviously a lot further off it's in its infancy um but work has just started if you go around euston area you can see hoardings up everywhere and you know there are buildings coming down and there are bodies being exhumed in churchyards that are going to be um that the tracks are going to go over so you know it's finally starting and so before um i'll bring the rest of the panel in a minute um let's just talk generally about the transport beats i mean with chris grayling as secretary of state i mean he's at least a new he's one of the few cabinet ministers who manages to punch through the Brexit news agenda. Um, I mean, Christmas was a busy time. You had drones that may or may not have been there. Mm. Uh, a ferry company that didn't have any ferries. Yeah. Empty lorries driving around a car park. What What Absolutely. is going on in the Department of Transport? Is it is he just unlucky or is he not very good? You know, I, I, a lot of people ask this and um, we've, as a newspaper, we've written lots of leaders on the subject. The fact is that... <laughs> That's one way of putting it. <laughs> the fact is that... He's been given a bit of a hospital pass to use a, a rugby analogy. It's a lot of the things that have fallen on his desk are the legacy of decisions that have been made years ago. For example, the decision to let out the East Coast Railway contract to Virgin East Coast, which was predicated on a ridiculous sort of sums of money, which they couldn't realise. You know, that was let by Patrick McLaughlin. Chris Grayling has to clear up the mess and, you know, failing Grayling gets criticised for it. You know, there, there is a lot of things that happen in transport which, which take a long, long time to, to, to come through. As we talked about just then, about Labour not fixing Northern Rail when they perhaps could have had opportunity. Now this government has, uh, has sort of been left with a mess. So, I don't know. I'm sitting on the fence, but, you know, given that I have to talk to these people at the time, <laughs> I don't mind doing that. Um, as, as we've got going, anybody else want to raise their own personal travel grumbles? Because <laughs> I'm personally... Is, there, all clear is there any mood at all towards nationalisation? Because obviously that's raised a lot by Labour. And some Tory MPs you talk to mm. talk about a sort of some kind of public-private or more involvement of the public. What's, is, do you think that up at all? Oh, God, yeah. I mean, it's got, it's got massive public support the the problem is is that a lot of people who support it don't quite understand how the railways operate at the moment and how it would somehow some miracle transformation as soon as you nationalize it the problem is is that they're effectively nationalized now network rail is a nationalized company all the train companies work on contracts which are set out in minute detail by government the people that run the trains would be the same if they were if they were nationalised or privatised. Literally, the only difference you would get is a slightly closer alignment between different train companies and 
the frankly minuscule profit that they make would go back into the trains. But you're talking Is sort of margin- minuscule. I imagine some they, minuscule profits. Yeah, you've got margins of less than between two and three okay. percent. It's not very big at all. You're talking, you know, the biggest profit was made, I think, on West Coast. They made about 50 million last year. You know, when you think that the government invested 6.4 billion in the railways last year, it's a very small amount. But politically, it plays very well, particularly people who've just had their fares increased. <laughs> uh, and, you know, so it's- make any difference to the passengers? Would they cap fares or what, what would practical well, well, difference well, would it make? Well, that, well that's what, what Labour are saying, that, you know, Labour are promising all sorts. I mean, probably flying trains by the time they actually <laughs> get down to the next general with election. Unicorns. With, with Driven flown, by unicorns. Driven by unicorns. Pilot, yes, piloted by unicorns. Uh, <laughs> you know, the, the fact is that it will make little difference. Like I say, you know, they just, for example, when the East Coast, Virgin East Coast, um, went bust in the middle of last year, it was officially renationalised under the new LNER brand. The exact same chief executives in charge, the exact same people are driving the trains. You know, it is, it's the same company. You know, literally all they did was change their website and stick a few new stickers on the side. But it's effectively run by the same people. The idea that you could renationalise the whole system and overnight, you know, have miracles, I think is, um, is fanciful stuff. Are we much worse than other countries? You hear all the time about how it's so much better in France or Germany or... I must admit, I'm not an expert on the French and German mm. railways, but the fact is that the, where the comparisons to the continent always fall down is that levels of subsidy in those countries are much, much higher, which brings us back to what we were saying right at the start of this conversation. If you want to invest and you want to divert taxpayers' money and you want to put it into the railways, then fine. You know, Switzerland, for example, has a very shiny, very efficient rail service, which is heavily subsidised by the state. You know, we could we could go back there, but that is a policy decision. Kenny, what's your... You're in Edinburgh this yeah. morning. What's your, your travel grumbles? We may be able to give you an insight into whether or not a nationalised railway works here in Scotland because we that is the policy of the SNP at the moment. I mean, this was this was never part of the devolution um, uh, uh, settlement, but um, uh, recently the SNP won uh, the right for a public sector bid for rail franchises in Scotland, and they're they're pushing ahead with that. And the exact detail of how that works is not quite um, uh, crystallised yet, but it is certainly on the tracks. I think we are obliged to say as journalists. Um, uh, and talk about buffers, uh, so, which no one else ever does apart from journalists. Exactly. But, but exactly. isn't ScotRail run as a bit a public private partnership, effectively? Um, anyway, in the terms that you described, Graham, you know that effectively, you know, they 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 run to a very very tight. Um, uh, program um, and, uh, and heavily subsidised, like all transport in Scotland, the subsidy, all the ferries are effectively um, uh, publicly owned. Uh, well, pub- yeah, p- publicly financed anyway, if not pub- public- publicly owned. The, the subtleties you talk about about whether or not um, this will actually make any difference on the ground is really um, not a feature of the debate here. I mean, people really want this, and I think it's a feature of um, how popular that policy is in, in England as well. I think it's one of Jeremy Corbyn's most popular policies. But although quite often you do wonder whether you know the pendulum of privatisation, nationalisation, you know, when it was mm. in nationalised hands and it was rubbish, everyone said it should be privatised. When it's in privatised hands and it's rubbish, everyone said it should be nationalised. Um, Graham, I just wanted to ask you, looking forward to the future, driverless cars, how, how far away are they, do you think? Well, um, if you believe the government, I think they... No, they I gave it to- <laughs> <laughs> um, Well, uh, you know the fact. The fact is that, uh, again, you know, driverless it, it, it 
it, it covers a whole uh, multitude of, of sins, if you like. And you know, we've already got vehicles out there which will drive, which will have lots of self-driving functions. Um, fully driverless cars, when you're literally sitting back and looking at your phone and having a pint of lager as the car drives itself, is a long way off. I mean, you know, maybe sort of mid to end of the next decade, probably even beyond that, because not least because you can't have a fully driverless system until the very last driven car effectively comes off the road because there's lots of unease about how driven cars will merge with fully driverless cars there's a long way to go but until we get there we will have progressively more autonomy in our cars we'll have cars that do more for us whether we get to the system where we completely take our hands off the wheel and put our foot up and have a cigar is probably quite a long way off i would say I'm sure we'll try and come back to all that, uh, but I'm conscious of time. So let's move on. And this is one of, I think, were it not for the dreaded Brexit, this would have been a huge story, not just in Scotland, but um, in Westminster as well. Let's talk about what's happening inside the SNP. This is Kenny Ferguson. Uh, There are civil wars raging within both the Conservative Party and the Labour Party at the moment. Are we about to see one within the Scottish National Party too, with rival factions coalescing around First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and their predecessor Alex Salmond? Can you just explain the sort of the background to this and the the what's what's okay. happened with uh, uh, you know listeners? You might need a pen and paper, but um, what's happened with Nicola Sturgeon and the allegations against Alex Salmond and how all that's played out? Yeah, well, Alex Salmond was First Minister before Nicola Sturgeon, as you know, and. Um, the, uh, in the last year, some allegations uh, um, emerged about um, a sexual misconduct by Salmond uh, at Butte House, which is the official residence of the First Minister. Now, these are the, currently the subject of um, a police investigation. Um, and I'm uh, obliged to say at this point, you know, Salmond denies, um, he disputes the uh, accusations and he denies criminality. Um, but what this has done is it's caused a split in the entire nationalist movement in Scotland. And I, I think if you, if, you, if you bear with me, it has three characteristics, shall we say. It's personal, it's cultural, and it's ideological. You know, it's, it's personal because these are the two biggest people, two biggest personalities within Scottish nationalism, within Scottish politics more, more, more generally. And um, a... Salmond holds Sturgeon responsible for the way the government has investigated these accusations and also for the way that she has she's really defended the, the senior civil servants in charge of this and, and talked about the Me Too movement and um, why it's necessary for people in power to be held to account regardless of their uh, their influence and their friends and, 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 and their power. And, and the two, Salmond and Sturgeon, they've been briefing against each other constantly in the Scottish press for months now and people in the SNP have been taking sides and what's interesting is that there's a there's a cultural pattern to how those people are taking sides and very broadly speaking because this isn't a, it can't be um, uh, as cut and dried as this but broadly speaking liberal minded people technocratic people woke people have tended to side with Nicola Sturgeon and the kind of people that um, I remember Hillary Clinton uh, described as deplorables. <laughs> They're the kind of people who think that political correctness has gone too far. Um, perhaps uh, also more elderly people, perhaps, are tending to side with Alex Salmond. I, uh, so we've got an example of this. This is the same divide, the same culture war 
that we see all over the Western world at the moment, and this is where it's manifesting itself in Scotland. But it's the, it's the third characteristic of this map that I think that, that's politically dangerous because there's an ideological split between Salmon and Sturgeon opening up on independence. And specifically, and I hate to mention the B word, uh, whether Brexit should be used as a, what's the word, a springboard for a new referendum on independence. You know, Sturgeon's always has been very cautious on this. She got her fingers burned. You remember the, the last time she called for what we call Indie Ref 2. Uh, that's the phrase we use in the Scottish political bubble. Um, the last time she called for that, the SNP lost a third of its MPs in the <laughs> didn't general go, election. It didn't go brilliantly well, that bit. Didn't go brilliantly well, and you know, and basically handed um, the Scottish Tories um, a dozen a dozen MPs and saved um, Theresa May. And um, you know, Salmon is much more gung ho about independence. He, it's almost like it's his personal destiny. You know, he believes he was cheated of a referendum when uh, last time in 2014, and there's a sense he sees this as kind of personal, unfinished business. And, it's, uh, it's interesting though because from the outsider's perspective sorry the sort of Westminster perspective for years we thought that the, the SNP was one in you know happy family entirely in harmony on all matters and the, mm. in the, Nicola, there was no difference between Nicola Sturgeon who was of course deputy to Alex Salmond is this is this tension been there all the time and now it's spilled out into the public or is it is, is this a new split and it turns out actually the SNP are just like every other political party well, if, if you go back further than the last decade, um, then the, there's been a, a, a split in the nationalist movement going back a century, well, as, as, as long as the national movement has existed between, and it's been between the fundamentalists and the gradualists, the people who, between the people who thought you just need one one more, one more heave and then you get over the line, and the people who who thought you you needed to actually incrementally increase Scottish powers. And then you know build to a position of independence almost by stealth, you know, and that divide has been very marked within the SNP and, and was 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 very divisive within the SNP in the eighties and the seventies and eighties and the nineties. It kind of disappeared when Salmon came into power and the Scottish Parliament came in, and a, and a, and a very modern, disciplined, new Labour style discipline. Um, marked the party uh, and 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 kept them together and 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 people sublimated those those instincts to the greater good of of of, of the party's political profile. Lucy, Kenny, I think it's really interesting. Yeah, what what, what you say about the um, new Labour style discipline is certainly what mm. we saw in um, in Westminster um, when the SNP um, won won so many uh, MPs in 2015, they're often known as the hive mind because they'd moved in a pack and it was impossible for journalists to kind of peel uh, a single one off or get anyone to leak things from, from meetings. Um, mm. and, and I think the usual rule is what if there's more than three people in a meeting, it'll it'll get out. These were meetings of 50 or more. Um, I just had a question um, on my patch, you know, a big something I'm really aware of that apart from uh, independence that the SNP um, have long campaigned on is getting rid of Trident from Faz Lane. And I wondered if... Yes. if, if um, if you thought that there was any possible movement on that, particularly, uh, you know, in the pros- in the scenario in which uh, the SNP formed some kind of coalition with Labour, whether that's a deal that could be made or whether you just think it's going to it's in stasis and will, will remain so for the foreseeable future. That that one is it's a very good question, and I and I think it it's one that we'll have to wait until independence. I think that, that any attempt, well, first of all, I can't see any uh, UK Unionist Party 
agreeing to get rid of Trident from Scotland um, as, as, as a price for power. I think that would be political suicide by any any UK party leader who wanted to do, to do that. But the issue is a very live one in, in Scotland because Brexit has actually been a very uh, interesting learning experience for Scotland um, in the sense that it showed what Scottish independence might look like, the process of Scottish independence might look like. And the language of Brexit has now is now starting to be applied to the language of Scottish politics. And you're starting to get people talking about, well, what would a hard independence look like? What would a soft independence look like? And and you know and, and into that debate become comes things like, well, would a soft independence include keeping Trident on the Clyde? Would that be a compromise that would have to be made um, uh, uh, to kind of, you know, to, to soften the, the, the blow or, or soften the impact and the political damage of independence? Would there be a, a, a hard indie and a soft indie? Um, so Trident is very much back in the political debate in a way that it hasn't been in Scotland for precisely that reason. I do remember a time, Kenny, I must have been during the independence referendum campaign when every journalist had suddenly become an expert on the depths of water required for moving <laughs> up the submarines and all that sort of thing. And now, yeah. obviously, we're all expert in tariffs and, and border arrangements and all, all that sort of thing. Always, you're just skimming over the top of stuff. Um, Kenny, it's really, really interesting speaking to you, and it's good to know that Brexit is infecting Scottish political language as much as it is uh, in Westminster. I feel like we've covered loads of ground, yet we could have spoken about it for, for hours and hours. Listeners, if you've got something else that you think we should be talking about other than Brexit, then email redbox at thetimes.co.uk or tweet us at timesredbox and we'll try and get the resident Times experts on to um, discuss it in the coming weeks. Don't forget you can sign up to my morning email at thetimes.co.uk forward slash redbox and make sure you subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, Acast, Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from so you don't miss future episodes. But for now, my thanks to Rachel, Lucy, Graham, Chris and Kenny and for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs> 